For example, you remember this morning we mentioned the fact that the National Institute of Standards and Technology, that is a way that we can know what is the truth about measurements and literally thousands upon thousands of measurements. If you went to their website, you wouldn't believe all of the measurements where there are standards, things that pretty much everything that you touch on a daily basis that, that is man-made, there is a standard to measure it. And so we look and we say, you know what? There is truth. There is absolute truth. And who is it that created truth, ordained truth? Who is it that, that suffices our very being through truth? As we consider that this evening, I'd like to take your mind to something that I hope that this will be maybe a picture that you would take with you into every worship service for the rest of your life. And, and I know you say, oh, you're asking a lot there. I can tell you the first time that this dawned on me, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of worship services now I've thought about this. If you had a picture of the God that you worship, what would it look like? The God you worship, do you see Him as a weak beggar? And, and He would just accept anything. You know, when we lived on Long Island, and we would, from time to time, go into the city, it was so common there to see beggars with their cups, and they would jingle a little bit, and, and, and they would even have, have kind of a barking that they would do, help a blind man help a blind man, and, and we would be on the subways, and, and they would literally walk the subways from one subway car to another subway car. And I always got thinking, I saw this particular guy more than once. He would have on the, the uh, dark sunglasses, and as he was walking by, he'd be cutting his eyes looking to see where if somebody was reaching in their pocket, he would stand there a little bit longer. Anybody have any? And he was giving them time. He wasn't blind. He saw everything. But you know what? They never did turn you down. When have you ever seen a beggar that has their can and, and, and you only put a dollar in? And when have you ever seen him take the dollar out and say, I wanted a five, please? It doesn't happen. Why? Because beggars literally are saying, is there anything that you can give to me? Do you realize the slap in the face that it is to God when individuals say things like, well, you know, we are all worshiping the same God and, and it really doesn't matter how we do it. Don't you know He's just pleased that we do it? No. And as a matter of fact, you haven't read your Bible from the beginning or anywhere in between if you believe God is a beggar that accepts anything in worship. Instead, who is God? Friends, it ought to offend us that people would think that way about our God. I don't want anybody thinking about my family member that they're a measly beggar and that they, they just accept anything that someone would give them. I don't want anybody thinking that about my physical father. I definitely don't want somebody thinking about that about my spiritual father, the almighty God in heaven. What is it in our culture today where if it's something I like, it has to be something he likes? It's arrogance. But instead, what if we picture God as a God who is so large, so powerful? You know, recently we studied quite a bit about the Godhead. You know, the God that He can't be limited by time. He's eternal. 
The God that can't be limited by power. He is all power. The God who, who can't be limited by presence. He can be everywhere at the same time. He can't be limited by knowledge. He knows everything. Who are we worshiping tonight? Do you realize we're worshiping the almighty God? The God that, that not only could hold the earth in the palm of His hand, He could hold the whole universe in the palm of His hand. And what if that God asked us to worship in a certain way? What if He asked us to worship in spirit and in truth? Do you think it would be important to Him what that truth is. Let's go back to the beginning of the Bible and work through some significant times. If you will, go back to Genesis, the fourth chapter. On this next slide, you'll see kind of where we're going. And in Genesis, the fourth chapter, the book, beginning of the book of Genesis is interesting because it's obviously designed to be the beginning of the Bible. And so we have three chapters of introductions. Chapter 1 is an introduction about God. The first 34 verses in the Bible, God is mentioned 35 times by name. It's not just a chapter of creation. It's a chapter where God says, I want you to know me. I am the creator. Genesis chapter 2 is a story about mankind. We have the introduction to Adam and to Eve and how Eve was formed and how they were the first man and woman, husband and wife, created to be husband and wife. And so we have an introduction to ourselves. Look at the garden God placed for us. And then we see an introduction to Satan. Chapter 3, we see that he came in, that he tempted Adam and Eve and that they sinned. And so think about that. Genesis chapter 1, hello, I'd like to introduce you to myself. My name is God. Genesis chapter 2, I'd like to introduce you to yourself, your mankind. Genesis chapter 3, I'd like for you to introduce you to your enemy. His name is Satan. We have the introductions out of the way. What's the first story in the Bible going to be about after the introductions? Is it surprising? Now, and think about this. The first story in the Bible after the introductions is where the Lord says, I want to show you two brothers that worshiped. And I want to show you. And it's almost as if God is saying, let's get this straight from the very beginning. I don't accept just anything. Let's look at that. Genesis, the fourth chapter. We have an introduction to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, verse 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. The book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, the great chapter of faith tells us that the reason God accepted his offering is because it was by faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing God. What did Abel do? Abel offered a sacrifice because he heard and obeyed God's will. It always is interesting to me how some of the scholars and different individuals, they try to really dissect what do you think was the difference in Abel's sacrifice and Cain's sacrifice. Friends, it's not rocket sciences. You don't have to be a scholar to figure this one out. It's real simple. One offered what God asked them to offer. He obeyed. One did not offer what God asked him to offer. He disobeyed. Well, what about the one that disobeyed? Look, if you will, in verse 5. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Now notice this. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. See God's patience and pleading? 
Cain, I've made it clear what the offering should be. Now, it's not revealed to us in the Scripture, but it was clear to Cain and Abel. And God knew that Cain knew that he didn't do what God asked him to do. And so he kind of gives him a second chance, if you will. Cain, won't you just make it right? He's making no effort to make it right. Do I need to remind you that when you disobey me, I don't respect your offering? Now think about this. He could probably say, but I like this offering. I put some thought into this offering. I, I really wanted to bring to you, God, what I wanted to bring to you. Maybe that's what was on his mind. Maybe it was a shortcut on his mind. God asked for this much, I'm going to bring this much. We don't know what it was except for the fact it wasn't what God asked. And so the result is, God says, I don't accept your offering and I don't respect you and sin lies at the door. And what does sin do? Sin separates us from God. From the beginning of the Bible, God did you accept anything in worship? Absolutely not. I'm not a beggar. I'll let you know what I want. And if you won't give me in worship what I ask for, I won't accept the worship and I won't accept you because sin separates you from me. That's pretty serious. That's pretty serious. Are we going to worship God in truth? From the beginning of the Bible, it's what he asked. This is patriarchal age, the very beginning of it. Let's go to the beginning of the priesthood of Aaron, who was the high priest, and his sons were priests. Let's go over to Leviticus, the 10th chapter. It's interesting how God gives us these stories where he's trying to set a, a precedent, if you will, about how firm he believes in individuals obeying him in worship at the beginning of time periods. And so now we have the Mosaic Age uh, getting underway. And if you have chapter headings in your Bible, you'll probably notice in Leviticus, the ninth chapter, at the chapter heading there says the priestly ministry begins. It probably says something like that. See, this is the beginning of, of the priesthood under Moses, which really is going to be under Aaron, his brother. And so he has two sons that are mentioned by name, Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10. And notice what he says here about these sons. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire. That's taking something that is holy and making it common. They offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. Is God serious? Why, why did this happen? It, in, in other words, does God strike everyone dead that worships in a false way? We know the answer. That's no. It's never been that way. Okay, why did God choose these two? And then why did God choose to record it? It seems that it's tied literally to a beginning of time. In other words, the beginning of the patriarchal age... God calls Cain out and he makes sure it's an example for everybody to see. The beginning of the Mosaic Age here, we have, we have the priesthood getting underway and it's just starting and there's two individuals. After all, they're the sons of the great high priest. Can you imagine maybe a little bit of arrogance coming in there? Our father is the high priest Aaron. We'll kind of do this, sense, uh, offering this incense how we want to do it. Notice, they didn't tell God, no, we won't worship you. They simply said, we'll offer fire, but we'll offer fire you didn't command. In other words, there's a substitution there for God's command of the fire for whatever they did that profaned the fire. The result, 
for them was execution. But what I'd like for you to notice as we walk away from this, we say, what does God want us to learn from this? Well, maybe what we've just observed is a part of what he wants us to learn. But verse 3, when Moses is told by the Lord to go and to talk to Aaron, because keep in mind, this is Aaron that's just lost two sons here. How would you feel? How would you feel if two of your children were just struck dead by God because they decided not to turn and rebel from God, not to say, I'm not going to worship the Almighty God anymore, but to say, this God we worship, I'm going to do some things my way. There's just some things to me that's more convenient. There's some things that are more comfortable. And then to be struck dead, how would you feel if that was your children? Would you feel like God was offering a disservice to you and to your family? Or do you believe that the God we serve is worthy of our submission in everything? And that our children should know that. Do you believe that? Would you take up for your children or would you take up for God? Do you try to defend yourself or do you try to defend God? What do we really believe about worshiping in truth? Look what he's told in verse 3. Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. They didn't regard their position of serving in worship as holy. And God says, that has to be punished. I must be glorified. Remember this morning we talked about the fact when we worship in truth, we're literally saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. Our will is never truth on our own. Our will on our own is fleshly. And whenever we say, I do not want my will to be done, I want to worship in truth the way God wants it to be done, we're literally saying, God's will is holy, I want to be holy. God is, is the one who is to be worshipped and is the one who is to be glorified, and I want God to be glorified. Let's move on a little bit deeper in the Bible. If you will, go to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter. Saul was the first king. And of course, kings would have great power. And so we see Saul being told by God near the beginning of the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel that he is to go into Amalek and that he is to slay everybody and, and all the creatures. In other words, don't bring back any sheep, don't bring back any oxen, even kill the king Agag. Now, they go in to destroy that uh, nation and they have the manpower and the blessings of God to be able to do it. But the problem is, he decides he's going to spare the king, and he blames the people. It may not have been just the people's fault, but they bring back some of the very best. And then when Samuel comes up to visit with Saul and to question him as to why he's disobeyed God, he tries to pull off the old animal sacrifice is going to be excellent spill. And so he comes up and says, why didn't you obey God? And he says, I did obey God. And you parents will get a kick out of this probably. You probably have some memories in your house that was like this. You know, and, and Samuel's standing there and, and says, why didn't you obey God? And he's saying, I did obey God. Remember, God's law was 
or command was to kill everything, everybody. And, and so as he's saying that, you hear the, the sheep in the background bleeding and, and you hear, you hear the, the cows mooing in the background and you go, oh, really? Really? That's interesting. And so when this discussion moved to the point that, that Saul felt like he needed to give some kind of excuse for his disobedience, his excuse was, the people brought back the best oxen and the best sheep so that they can make an excellent sacrifice to God. Now think about, that would have been a type of worship for them. Is that what we strive for in worship? Excellence? We hear a lot about that, don't we? That's, that's a very uh, common or vogue word today in and. In, in, in companies where there's creativity, they want excellence. A lot of time in organizations, whenever they're, they're setting uh, plans for the, the next year, there's a lot of talk about let's do it with excellence. A lot of time, churches are even talk about worship. Let's, let's do everything in excellence when we come together to worship. And so you can imagine their, their interpretive dancing teams Oh, that had to be a wonderful worship. You know God loved that. That was done with excellence. Wow, did you see that performance of the band? That, that was done with excellence. We've never had lighting like that before. God had to love that. That was excellence. Did you see that drama in worship? That was well rehearsed and it really got the point across. That has to be pleasing to God because that was done in excellence. Does excellence translate into acceptance by God? Here's a perfect Old Testament story where if you want to talk about the best, they literally brought back the very best of an entire nation. And then when Saul is called on the carpet about it, he says, we're ready to offer it. We're ready to give an excellent sacrifice to God. Well, let's see what Samuel says about it. Let's go to verse 22, 1 Samuel 15th chapter, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What's Samuel saying here? You mean to tell me if you had to choose, Saul between an excellent sacrifice or obeying, you really believe God is going to go for the excellent sacrifice and disobedience? Can you imagine Samuel thinking, you don't know God very well, do you? Let's read the next phrase. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed, that's to listen, that's to obey. To heed than the fat of rams. Friends, what do you think God wants? I want you to imagine for just a moment, and I'm not saying large versus small makes it righteous or, or unrighteous. Please understand that. I, I'm not saying that at all. I've been a part of larger congregations and smaller congregations. I'm just trying to paint a picture to illustrate. I want you to imagine a large church that, that if you were to look at that from a human standpoint, you'd say everything there was done with excellence. Did you see that band? Did you see that facility? Did you see everything that was going on? That was excellent. And then I want you to imagine these little 20 people 
they found a room in somebody's house to worship. And none of them are real good singers. But they have poured out their heart in singing to God. And if you were a third-party person just standing on the outside of the house looking in, and then you go and you stand on the outside and look in this place, you'd say, surely this is better. This was excellent. Which one does God say is better? The problem with excellence, and please, in your mind, tie this back to this morning's lesson. The problem with excellence is that it doesn't really exist. It's not a set standard. Have you ever tried to peg excellence and it stayed the same? Excellence shifts. You know what an excellent VBS would be next year? One better than this year. Is that not right? If you do better on your budget next year than what you do this year, you're going to say, we've done excellent. You get a review at work and, and, and you're going to feel that it's probably excellent if it's just better than the past reviews you've had. Why? Because excellent is usually in our minds a moving target. I really believe from our human nature, that's why we love to talk about excellence. And you know what the Lord says? The Lord says, I'm not really concerned about excellence. I want to know if you're ready to obey. Obedience trumps excellence every time. Obedience trumps sacrifice. Well, I tell you what, I, I, just, I just pulled out of my pockets and I just gave a whole lot last Sunday, so God must be pleased with me. You know what God's pleased with? When you pull out every Sunday an obedient offering to Him financially. When you gather around His table every Sunday and you obey in the way He has taught us to partake of that supper. When we sing songs and what we have done has been in total obedience to what He has asked us to do. When we bow our head in prayer and when we have said that prayer, we have obeyed every teaching that God has given us. And when we listen to a study of God's Word, we have obeyed with a true and an honest heart that will produce results. Friends, you, you've heard me say it over the past few weeks. You can't overemphasize obedience. I'm not taking away from the grace of God. There's nobody here that has a hope without the grace of God, how awesome the grace of God is. But anytime we start thinking that some kind of measure of how good something is becomes better than obedience, we've lost the whole Christian journey. The whole Christian journey is about saying, Lord, I submit myself to your feet. I want to obey you. What happens when we lose it? It becomes rebellion. Look at 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Why? Because when you leave truth, the only place you have to go is towards Satan. We studied that this morning. And stubbornness, in other words, willing, an unwillingness to turn ourselves back to God. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because why? You have rejected the word of the Lord. That's disobedience. He also has rejected you from being king. Isn't this interesting? Cain, I don't respect you because of your offering. Nadab and Abihu, I reject you because of the way you made the offering. Saul, I no longer reject you. I no longer accept you. I reject you as king. Why? Because you think excellence is better than obedience. And then, this morning, we looked at Matthew, the 15th chapter. So I'm only going to mention it in a sentence and move on. But you remember, Matthew, the 15th chapter is where 
they worshiped in vain because they were listening to the doctrines of, or the commandments of men and they had been taught to them as if it were the doctrines of God. We cannot become blind followers following after blind leaders. We'll end up in the ditch. So I'd like to close this evening's lesson, if you will, by going to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. And I'd like to look, when we think about church history, when I say early, I don't mean just the first couple of years, but when we look at the church being in existence for almost 2,000 years, this is definitely early in church history. And let's go back to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, and let's think about, is it important? We're talking about tonight. Does God care how we worship? Is he a beggar that holds out the can and says, just give me anything? He said to Cain, no, that's not true. He says Nadab and Abihu, no, that's not true. He says to Saul, no, that's not true. Jesus stands to those individuals in Matthew the 15th chapter. He tells them absolutely, no, that's not true. Your worship is empty. We don't accept that. But now we come over to the New Testament church. They were distorting the partaking of the Lord's Supper in horrible ways that we don't have time to develop tonight, but it had a lot to do with prejudice. It had a lot of turning the Lord's Supper into a total meal. It, it, it would become very irreverent. And the main thing, if you read the next few verses beyond what we'll read tonight, is real simple. He says, just go back and see how it started in the beginning. In other words, if you go back to the truth, you'll see that the way you're doing it is not anything like the truth. And that's always the answer. The answer is, let's just go back to the truth. What is it that God wants? But the reason I want us to read this tonight is, is for our last point. I want you to notice verse 17. And, and really, let's just deal with this simple principle. Does God care? Look in verse 17. Paul is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is the teachings of God in 1 Corinthians 11 and 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better but for the worse. Okay, let's put in other words what Paul's saying there. You would have been better if you would have stayed at home instead of worshiping like that. Now that's something. Well, I don't think the Lord really cares as long as we're wanting to worship Him. I mean, after all, these Christians in Corinth, they're coming together because they love God. They're Christians and they're worshiping Him. And they're actually taking the Lord's Supper. Now, that's not exactly the way we take the Lord's Supper, but they're taking the Lord's Supper. I'm sure God's pleased with that. God says, listen, you thought you were coming together for something better, and you're leaving worse than when you came. Why? Because it's a serious offense when we do not worship in truth. God is not a beggar that says, you throw anything at me in worship, and I'll say thank you. Instead, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God says, obey what I ask you to do in worship. Obey. Worship's all about Him. There's one in the audience. And when we come to worship God, in spirit and in truth, we're humbly saying, God, it's not about me. It's all about you. Because He's worthy of it. He knows what's best for us. He loves us so much, He gave His only begotten Son. There's not anybody that will love you like Him. And there's not anybody that will ask as much of you as Him. There's not anybody that will offer the reward 
to you that He can offer. No one can offer the hope. No one can offer the purpose for living that He can offer you tonight. I hope this house is full of individuals who have set their heart and their sight upon not just worshiping in truth, but living in the truth of God. God's not concerned about whether you can compare yourself to your neighbor and say, I'm excellent. God is concerned about us laying our life down at His feet and being obedient. Tonight, if you evaluate your life and you realize you've never come to Him and you want to come being baptized into Christ, we'd love to assist you with that this evening as a believer willing to repent of sins and confess. Maybe you have come to the Lord and since you let things separate you from God and everybody in this place knows there's not anybody here perfect. If you need to come back and pray forgiveness, if we can help you in any way, help you come to the truth of God, we'd love to do that. Come as we stand and ask.